Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. We look ahead to the local elections. I interview comedian and satirist Matt Ford. And we explain why Brexit could be solved with a time machine and an eraser. Stephen, are you excited about the local elections? I am. Can I ask you very quickly, first of all, they're happening on Thursday, yep. 2nd of May. What time can we expect the first results in? We can expect the first results at around midnight at the earliest. So obviously, you know, most of you will be listening to this in the, the morning the morning of it. Early access listeners, of course, will be listening to it slightly ahead of that time. So they'll be able to get loads of extra sleep on Wednesday. Yeah. Because So when's the first interesting result? Is it, is it Sunderland, like in the general? Is that a good... No, so, some, so actually this, this, is, this is quite good fun, right? Because so <laughs> okay. the, the thing that will obviously happen... And uh, we, there will be some kind of special by the politics team on Friday afternoon. The thing that we expect to happen is that there will be you know, someone who will get the kind of the difficult job of having to stand up and go, you know, look, actually, uh, this was really about local issues. It, mm. It's not when people hate the Conservative Party. It just turns out all of our local councils are bad. Right. So despite the fact that whenever a party does badly, they kind of do this whole oh, actually there were complex factors. You really do have to do quite badly locally or quite well if you're a big party and you're in office to escape national swings right so Sunderland is kind of a, the great example of that right because Sunderland declare early they are in general elections are pretty even though obviously it's a safe labor in terms of the swings you can look at it and go okay right so that suggests the, the, the next will happen in local elections labor has done significantly worse than you would expect for Sunderland and significantly worse than than you would expect from the night on. There are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, I think to give you an idea of some of the problems, I think it's enough to note that it's one of the few places where the National Conservatives think they could make gains and the local Conservatives, a key part of their manifesto pledge is that all of their councillors will go through enhanced DB Because they've had a jet. small, problematic paedophile issue. I think actually you'll find he was an ephebophile, 
or, oh. but yeah, I mean they they have a they they had a counselor. I mean, if that's the argument say, you're making, <laughs> I'm I'm not suggesting on the hashtag doorstep then people are going going. Well, I think you're fine, right? But, but okay, yeah, so, so that one genuinely does have local issues in general. So right, the slightly annoying thing is early on in the night, it's quite lousy with very safe conservative council seats. However, the fun dynamic that we don't know about at this election, right, is. There are a bunch of people who who have the following profile. They voted to leave. They always vote Conservative. They're angry about Brexit. And they plan to protest by voting for the Brexit Party or UKIP. But, of course, the Brexit Party is standing nowhere. And UKIP is a much reduced force compared to 2015 when they they last stood this. So the question is, one, will those people actually bother to vote at all? And two, if someone gets to the polling station, right, Mm. expecting to be able to vote, Brexit protest, Brexit protest, yeah, yeah, for Brexit or UKIP, and they have a ballot paper which just has Conservatives, Labour, Lib Dems, Greens on it. Do they just do a Roger Helmer, write Brexit in big red letters and walk out? Do they go, I'm angry with the Conservatives and I know that under our system the the thing you press to to hurt the Conservatives is is Labour? Or do they go, I'm going to vote for the Conservative Party? So... I think actually from quite early on, we should at least have a good idea of how well the Conservative vote is holding up. Because although we would expect the Conservatives to lose a reasonable amount of seats, we would expect both Labour and the Liberal Democrats to post uh, triple digit figures. We would expect the Lib Dems to do particularly well because these are seats which were last held in 2015 when they obviously were having quite a bad night and 2011 when they had another very bad night as well. The kind of the potential for it to get sort of properly terrible is if you have lots of conservatives not turning up. Yeah, like where because we expect time to be lower because it's a local election. And, you know, all the parties say it will be. But if you have a, a uniquely conservative turnout problem... So you have you depressed just, turnout among conservatives and everyone else's just remains normally low. Normally, normally low, yeah. And so, so in Broxbourne, for example, safe conservative council, but the local Labour and Liberal Democrat parties are pretty well run, right? You can consistently see that just from local elections and they're, they're, they're always consistently turning out their votes. And you can see how... Uh, in you know depressed turnout, then suddenly those six hundred votes mm. that the, the Labour candidate usually finishes a distant second with might suddenly not be a distant second, right? Which I mean is essentially kind of the story of say of like Kensington in the general election. Bunch of depressed Liberal Conservatives went. I think I'm washing my hair that day. Local Labour Party did a really good job. Got a slight turnout boost, but the significant thing was the uh, was the Conservative vote for. And Emma Dent Code ends up as Labour MP for Kensington, which hasn't happened since AD forty seven. Yeah, that leads me on to my next question, which is kind of: Does it matter? The reason for that is, it segues neatly into another theme that I know that you've been writing about this week, which is that traditionally it was always seen that you know the Lib Dems were incredibly strong in local government and they kind of used that as a power base and an activist base in order to kind of march their way towards building up little pockets of Lib Demery, which under first-past-the-post they could then translate into seats. So if, you know, the Conservatives have a really bad night, if Labour have a... Yeah, kind of okay night, and the little parties, one or two of them, have a massive surge. Does it actually matter? So there are a couple of reasons why it does matter. The first, and this is in no particular order, right? The, the first is that local councillors build your activist base, right? You obviously have to be a party member before you become a councillor, but in terms of people actually going out every week, organising leaflet runs, keeping your local party well run, you know, if you have a sitting councillor, your local party will be a more effective campaigning force. For really obvious reasons, right? You you create another another person who a 
has a stipend and B has a direct incentive and a work reason to go out every day. You have someone who can be the rallying figure, particularly if it's a seat you don't hold already, right, where you don't have a sitting MP mm. to organise around. Or if you do have a sitting MP there in Westminster, you know, three or four, four days of the week. It's an organisational Philip to have one and it's an organisational problem to lose councillors, right? So, I mean, we see that that dynamic is even more pronounced with small parties, right, where you basically tend to, although there are a couple of places where the kind of final stage hasn't happened, but you tend to have this kind of like Lib Dems gain a councillor, Lib Dems gain two councillors, oh God, they've taken over the wards, oh, they've taken, yeah, so mm-hmm. one Labour MP was like, say Lib Dems are like Japanese knotweed, right, you're just like, you see one in a by-election and then suddenly you wake up the next morning and your majority is down to 2,000. Although that dynamic is even more pronounced with with the minor parties, a minor version of it does play its way through with national parties. I mean, Hastings, right, a classic example, right? Labour has just gradually done better and better winning the council elections. Their candidate is the council leader. They do all sorts of, you know, the usual clever things you do when your candidate's a councillor, which is give them, like, the nice opportunity to go, like, and today... Councillor X will will you know open the rec room right? I was going to say like you, open a library, yeah, and you post do with all, some adorable children. It seems like there there are so many logistical benefits to having local councillors. The other thing that matters, of course, right, is the kind of long term story of Labour's vote from two thousand and five onwards has been it doing worse in small towns and suburbs and better in big cities. In twenty seventeen, it did very, very well in cities to the point where it was able to gain several places that kind of broadly fit that. Like type. Canterbury, Canterbury, yeah. Portsmouth, where where you would usually have gone. Oh, okay. Well, if they've won that, they must have a majority of you know eleven two billion or whatever. The big hope that lots of conservatives had at the last set of local elections, they went, okay, look, we've we've lost lots of seats in areas we'd expect them to, but what this shows is. You basically get to a small town, the Labour vote collapses, and that means that we we can only ever be the largest party. Yeah, they can't get into largest party status, and we'll be able to keep office mm-hmm. one way or the other. So the interesting thing is, I think, actually, this, this local election may, and the thing to watch out for, may show a path to which that is not true. Now, I think there are a number of reasons... Hang on a minute, so what, that, that small parties will gain stuff, but it won't... Oh, no, then it might be that Labour can actually gain seats in, in these small towns. Than so in the places where Labour's doing badly, it will do better than it would, but that's not necessarily like break out the bunting and south side, you know. Oh, no, what I mean is, is that basically the pattern in last year's local elections was that Labour did what it, you would expect from the general election, did well in big cities, not that well in small yeah. towns. It's possible, and there are a variety of reasons to believe that this uh, may be the case, that what we'll start to see at this election is Labour managing to do better in small towns. I mean, obviously, all of their PPBs, all of their policy announcements, well, pretty much all of their policy announcements are are targeted on, on that group. Their Brexit policy, of course, is heavily calibrated around winning areas like that. And you have a Conservative party that is in some difficulties. So you would assume it would be a... So I think it will tell us something if they can break down and sort of erode that last source of uh, conservative optimism. And of course, like the, the main thing though, right, is ultimately this could be another local election, the second under Vince Cable and the second since they went to coalition, which basically says the Lib Dems are kind of semi-reviving. And I think that this is why, to go back to Sunderland, right, the really significant set of results last year, I would argue, were Lib Dem gains in Sunderland and Lib Dem gains in Hornsey. Why? Because actually... Hornsey, North London, Hornsey. Yeah, okay. Because in both of those, 
And Hornsey, obviously, the referendum policy helped. But in both of those, actually, it was not about the Lib Dems' national positioning or what was going on. It was the old-fashioned, your council's in the news for reasons that you are uncomfortable with. Why don't you vote for the Lib Dems? Now, the reason why I think that's actually probably more important for the Liberal Democrats than whether or not their national policy is bearing fruit is we kind of know that the national offer of the Lib Dems is, look, you might have feelings about the coalition, but you also have feelings about the EU. And their hope is, of course, that you can, you, know, you, can, you can sort of resuscitate by going back to one of their core uh, foundational values, something that's you know, literally written into their constitution. They can win back support that way. But I think it's actually more significant than their intensely hyper-local ability to profit off of mm. the local council's not very good and no one around here votes Conservative slash Labour is, I think, more significant, not least, of course, because we have another new and therefore minor party who a large part of their argument for their creation is that the Liberal Democrats are irredeemably toxic. Right, OK, I was going to... I was. I haven't got very much time left, but I was going to gently steer you onto the subject of Chuck Tig, mm. the independent group, as was now Change UK, because you've been quite mean about them, I Stephen. Not mean. And, you know, I think that, you know, they're just... They're just a, 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 some MPs standing in front of an electorate saying not very much that's massively interesting so far. But go on, tell me what's wrong with them. Well, so I think right, the problem is is that you have a group of people who have uh, grown up in a big party. Yeah, the thing that one liberal said was, you know, if you're the Liberal Democrats, you have six chances per parliament to win an election. Which uh, is all the what the by-elections... Yeah, basically, they were like, yeah, you throw in your by-elections, your local election launches, and, of course, the general election. Mm. And those basically give you six guaranteed chances, and all of the other chances you have to go out and earn, whether it's going... It's bad that the Labour government is taking away the visas of Gurkhas or we need to do more on child refugees. But of course, the problem if you're a small party is at any point a big party can come and take that from you, right? So Gurkhas, like, pretty good example, right? It was actually the Lib Dem, I think maybe Marco, but it was the Lib Dems who made most of the running on that. But then, of course, right at the end, when it becomes clear it's going to be be one, the Conservative opposition comes in and kind of does the John Terry and full kit. Actually, I'm going to take take this win. Refugees. Tim Farron, one of the first people to start really going on about it. Of course, Yvette Cooper then sweeps in during the leadership election and goes, I'm going to have my refugees commission. And because she's someone from a big party, she's more significant. I think there's also the fact that actually, if you grow up in a big party, you're sort of used to the status that that automatically endows you with and the machine that automatically endows you with. And the example that I always use is the difference in treatment in the media between David Cameron the Tory leader versus David Cameron, the Remain leader. And that really just completely shocked him, I think, and that campaign that they just put, it was like they were sort of pressing the le- the pedal and, and nothing was going through. And I think that's the, if you come from the opposition party, the main opposition party, you know, it's like the government's announced this policy, this story on the BBC, there's still the biggest, you know, news source, you know, w- what's the opposition response to it? And then you have to say, Jeremy Corbyn says this is typical of how austerity policy fails. And this thing's like, Corbyn doesn't, have to be funny, for example, right? Uh, like essentially, if the government does something bad and the Labour Party doesn't like it, Corbyn or Ian Lavery or whoever the shadow minister is can just go, This is bad. This is bad. The government should not have done this. And then it's in par five yeah. or six of the yeah. story. If you're, yeah. the, if you're the Liberal Democrats or any of the other parties, right, unless the other two parties agree with one another, you've got to do some kind of like, you know, she's becoming a cross between Stalin and Mr Bean. Because otherwise no one cares, no one's ever going to include your quote. I think they haven't quite absorbed the difference of that challenge yet. And I don't think they've really absorbed how how big of an opportunity and therefore big of an opportunity cost things like their launch of their Euro candidates were. 
There's quite an important but though, which is it's only one poll, but there's a very interesting set of Yuga polls basically confirming what we kind of expect, which is that people don't know what Change UK is. It has very little penetration. All of the stuff you would expect because of the ways they haven't adjusted to life in the slow lane. However, I think it's, it's striking to me that the gap between them and the Greens is only about thir- about 10 points, and the gap between them and the Lib Dems in terms of people knowing about their is only about 15 points. The reason why I think that is perversely a source of optimism for them, I don't know why I said optimism in such a weird voice there, <laughs> is because I think that the Greens and the Liberal Democrats are already doing a pretty good job of being small parties. Mm. Uh, I, for them, at least, if you went, how are you going to add 15 points onto that gap, I'd go... I mean, they work pretty hard. They but, have got some assets, though. Yeah. I mean, I do think the fact that both, I would say, Chukramuna, Heidi Allen, Anna Subri are all, you know, very easily soferable, right? Yeah, they've got a watchable quality. And the, but that's things because more but, so than the Lib Dems beyond Joe Swinson and maybe Leila Moran. But I think the thing is, right, is that the, it's very hard to work out, right? Oh, you look at the Lib Dems, oh, that fifty-three percent have heard of what their Brexit policy is, and you kind of go, "What would I get them to change?" To get to 60%? Answer, I don't know. I think they're pretty much maximising what they, they're, they're doing things quite well. So in an odd way, despite the fact that because you're a minor party, your chance won't come around, might, won't come around for some time, the advantage, perversely from that quite poor set of polling for Change UK, is there are lots and lots of things they could do better off the shelf, as it were. Right? It's a little bit like if you're conceding goals all the time because your defenders are two five-year-olds... Sign a twenty-year-old, right? If you're—I mean, I'm not a big fan of football, but that seems—I, yeah, I feel like that might be a bad idea. Whereas, if you're, you know, conceding goals all the time, you have no transfer budget, etc., etc., your problems are harder to solve. Did you see that clip of three professional Japanese footballers playing against a hundred school children? I didn't. Did they? I, what I love about footballers, footballers versus school won. children yeah. is the footballers literally never seem to go. Let them let yeah. them win. Like a, <laughs> see the smiles on their little old, faces. Slightly awkward. An old Jim will fix it thing where a local school in North London played Arsenal, right? Very much is like, you know, a fun day out for the kids, right? But what they did was they literally just like passed the ball between themselves, the Arsenal players, let the kids run into the ground. So like Paul Merson just bangs, you know, yeah. Yeah, and then just basically the went, yeah, like waited until like the kids are kind of like <gasps> and then just scored to win one nil and you just think I mean, you you couldn't have let them have let a... them have like I mean a one one draw. Yeah, that would have <laughs> no yeah. the competitive instinct, and yeah, and Arsenal too boring Arsenal. On that note, thank you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And I'm joined by the comedian, satirist, impressionist, and eater, it says on your website, yes, Matt Ford. Yes, yeah, yeah, I need I to mean... get that bit under control, really. <laughs> Matt, you're doing two shows. You're doing Brexit Through the Gift Shop at the Bloomsbury Theatre on the 25th of May, and then a month-long run at the Edinburgh Fringe for Brexit Pursued by a Bear. Yes. You're working the groove of Brexit rhyming with exit very hard. <laughs> I have, yeah. I mean, I'm running out of ideas, as the two titles suggest, so... Uh, Brexit Through the Gift Shop is um, a show that started at last year's Edinburgh Festival and that I've toured across the UK. 
And thanks to uh, Theresa May continually extending our departure from the European Union means I can keep extending the tour. So it's ended up running longer than <laughs> perhaps I or indeed the audience would have liked. Uh, and then Brexit Pursued by a Bear is a show I am yet to write for this year's Edinburgh Festival, which I'm going to have to kind of crack on with. Right, no pressure. I had Andy Zaltzman in here, here a couple of weeks ago and I said, look, my premise is that now all the Brexit jokes have been made. It's all like, and now it's just, and then we're in, in the same way that Donald Trump, I think, has not been an unloyed good for comedy, right? Because he's just, at the same time, very doing a lot of very scary things, but doing them in an incredibly ridiculous way. And trying to match up those two tones is actually very difficult. It is. What's definitely true of both of them is that they are endless supplies of material and horror. And what they both are are, are things that even the public that isn't that bothered about politics are aware of. And that's a big deal. So as long as they exist and continue to churn out the, the level... I mean, with Trump, there is so much material. And with Brexit, there is so much to go at that I struggle more to cut it down than I do to than the opposite. Now, I, th- I know other comedians that say actually they've found Brexit very hard, that the public are tuning out of it, that it's boring, that they don't want to get into the detail. But I've always been of the view that detail is where the comedy is. And it was the detail that obviously revealed that the government had given a shipping contract to a company that had no ships. The terms and conditions of which were copied from a takeaway website. So once you get into and I would read these reports anyway, but once you follow select committees and, and get buried in the detail, that is where you find the comedy. So I... Um, I'm perhaps slightly counterintuitive in that in that way. When people come to your shows, what kind of level of politics knowledge do they have? Because I did a joke on the news quiz about Nick Timothy, former Theresa May advisor, and I thought, come on, yeah. it's, I mean, it's a, you know, for those of us who know and love the work of Nick Timothy, he's a, <laughs> he's a rare beast. But I really thought no one's going to know what the hell I'm talking about. But they they laughed. I was really surprised. Oh, I think on a, with a news quiz audience, you'd be on safe ground with stuff like that. I think in a comedy club. Mm. On a Saturday night, maybe not, but then I'm performing to people who come and see my shows. I get a varied mix, to be honest, of people who are politicos, including members of parliament, ministers, special advisors and people like that, and local councillors. I also get loads of people that just like comedy and have seen me on comedy shows and thought I did a good impression of Donald Trump once, or people that listen to me on a football radio show and quite like the football impressions I do. So I get a kind of rainbow coalition of people of all political... I get loads of leavers coming to see me, even though the show is expressly a kind of howl of anguish. Romaniac howl. Absolutely. But I still get leavers who come along because I'll take the mick out of Jeremy Corbyn. I I suppose, in a way, I'm not too offensive to them. Even though I expose, I think, how ludicrous Brexit is, I'm not nasty about it. Right, because that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. You know, a London audience, an Edinburgh audience, I would have presumed both of those are going to be incredibly heavily Remain audiences. And it's one of the things that I find quite uncomfortable is the idea about doing, oh, isn't the government you know, mucking up Brexit material to a group of, into a warm bath of people yes. who all didn't think it was a good idea in the first place, right? There's no kind of challenge there. How do you negotiate that? I mean, I've always taken the mick out of everyone, and I think maybe it's easier for me because that's where my politics are, and at the moment my politics don't feel particularly represented, so I really disagree with them all. I don't have any time for Jeremy Corbyn, I don't have any time for the Tories, I don't have any time for Brexit, I don't agree with Scottish independence, so, you know, on, on all the big issues of the day, I'm against pretty much everything that's happening. Now, obviously, Change UK or the independent group are a form of what I believe, but they're not in any way majorly powerful or about to seize power so in a way I'm I'm annoyed with everyone so that makes it very easy and that means that at different points I would challenge different parts of the audience one thing I always notice is I mean I have to start with the Tories because they're in power and it's just fairer to whack the Tories arguably even when they're not in power the bit when I will do any Labour stuff taking the mech out of Corbyn is always the tensest bit 
So you were, you joined the Labour Party at what, 15? 15, yeah. And then you left in 2015 when... Yeah, I left the day I became leader. Oh, so right. 20, yes, 2015. 20, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I know, it all seems so oh, long God, ago yeah. now. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, so you and the Jamie, who the minister who resigned during the speech, both of you really... Jamie Reid, was it? Yeah. <laughs> both of you were just like, darling, I'm leaving, right, the instant he came into, into office. Why? I'd seen politicians like Jeremy Corbyn before, all over Britain, and I knew, I thought I knew, and sadly I've been proven right, what he represented, which is, I always thought he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. I've never bought a kind of cuddly hard left. I've seen what they do at a local level all over the UK. And the reality is, I think for most people in Britain, socialism is seen as quite a, a, a soft, almost poetic the kind of Donald Dewar socialism that he would talk about, rather than an authoritarian economic theory that has some very problematic strands to it. My experience in the Labour Party taught me that it was deeply problematic, that that I was always more of a social democrat than a socialist, and that this romance around socialism had never really been explored in the same way that we explore fascism at GCSE level. Because of British history, we've never really focused fully on communism and what what it actually means for people. So the moment Corbyn came along and everything he represented, which was, I thought, very authoritarian, very hard left. I was going to say, he's nowhere near a communist, though, is he? I mean, he's, nowhere, he's not as close to a communist as some of the populist far-right leaders in Europe are close to fascism, I would argue. No, but he's authoritarian. Mm. If you look at the way he treats people who disagree with him, they're dismissed as firstly smears, and then when the evidence grows too much, you know, there's lip service paid. I mean, the treatment of the Jewish community is something that I didn't fully see coming, but it's been horrific that the Labour Party of all the parties has treated Jewish people in this way is um, is rancid. And it, I find it really emotionally distressing. I find it really difficult that what is so obviously happening to these people is they're being persecuted again by elements of the British left that are deeply sympathetic and directly connected to the leadership. And it's kind of, it's just dismissed as not a problem. And, it, and it's all out there in the open. And I, I really worry about what happens next if Corbyn wins for, for, for the Jewish community in Britain. So, I, I you know, I have... I suppose the point I'm making is I, I never bought him as a as a harmless individual. I always thought that actually it was a persona masking some darker elements, and that's been proven to be the case. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is what do you think people were voting for when they voted for Jeremy Corbyn? Because I think people were voting for more money for public services, you know, a kind of pretty, you know, old-school Labour platform, right? I don't think that the vast majority of people knew that he initially talked about pulling us out of NATO, for example, that he has, was a long-term Eurosceptic who wouldn't initially kind of commit to campaigning to remain in the EU. I think all of that kind of... There was a kind of introduction process of him in which people saw anti-Iraq war, pro-money for public services, anti-austerity, yes. and it took a... And that maybe is a failure of journalism that actually... Because journalists didn't take him seriously at first, they didn't actually communicate his entire policy platform and persona to people. And I totally agree with with the first bit was that people just wanted a more left wing Labour Party, and they particularly, you know, and therefore a more left wing government. So people had, you know, were sick of five or so years of austerity. They weren't particularly happy. A lot of people on the left with the new Labour period anyway, and just wanted Labour to be Labour again. And Corbyn came along at a time where the other candidates seemed to be talking in a language that didn't connect or resonate with people and Corbyn had very straightforward answers was wrapped in a cuddly exterior and yes of course for those people they're not voting for hard line dogma they just want the world to be a better place they're hurting they know that society is unfair you know when Jeremy Corbyn describes the problems with society I don't disagree with him a lot of the time 
But it's the medicine that you would prescribe is what I disagree with. And the issue I have with the Corbyn leadership bid was that people were warned about his relationship with people like Hamas, Hezbollah and the IRA. People were told that he was anti-EU and anti-NATO. They weren't that bothered. And I think what's really difficult for people now is, I think there's a group of... I mean, the, the people that are totally enamoured with him, I think so many of them will always be. A lot of his fellow travellers obviously wish he was further to the left. But I think there was a kind of blob of people, maybe around the sort of Ed Miliband point on the compass, <laughs> who think... They're oh not my, actual Ed Miliband, they're not, clarify. Yes, but around that kind of point in the Labour Party who think, and the movement, that think, oh my God, we didn't prioritise, you know, we didn't listen to the warnings and look what we've ushered in. And I think a lot of reasonable Labour people, old Labour people, overlooked the, the deep failings of Corbyn and preferred to look at the positives. And they can't say they weren't warned. And I just think that's really difficult because how do you row back from that? One of the things I think is always interesting about kind of guarding against is the idea that you're just, particularly as a satirist, you're just against everything and you just apply a kind of corrosive level of <laughs> yeah, cynicism yeah, to yeah. everything. But right, but I think it, and it's easier to be when you're on the kind of centre-left and there's no one really speaking. Yeah. Well, then what's your best uh, Change UK TIG material? Oh, obviously it's uh, Funny Tinge was a, uh, was a, was a deep right. well of uh, material. So for, this is Angela that. Smith and getting... I mean, I can't even remember the context in which she said it, but she said that there was racism against people with a funny... T- I mean, it was just... I think a, one of those... something like racism isn't just about whether you're black or a funny tinge. Now, obviously, whether I agree with the party or not, that is a comment that is ripe for satire. Yeah. So I'll do material about people that I agree with, and I think I do material about Gordon Brown and Tony Blair in the show. You know, I, I think everyone's fair game. The tone of that material might vary, depending on who I'm talking about, but I certainly don't think, oh, because I agree with them, I'm not going to touch them. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. I think also is, even though at the moment I'm disillusioned with the way British, and to some extent global politics, has gone, that doesn't mean that I don't have respect for politics or the process or democracy as a whole. And I think my heart sinks when I hear some people talk about politics and say, oh, they're all the same and they're all corrupt. I've never believed that. I don't think they're the same at all. I think if there's one thing that does unite the vast majority of politicians in Britain is that they do want to make the world a better place and they just have a different view of what that is. It's the leadership of the parties at the moment that I have an issue with. I think Parliament has an embarrassment of talent on all sides that aren't getting anywhere near the front bench. There is there is a, a lot of hope in the House of Commons. All right, give me, give me five MPs you think are, are genuinely you know interesting and good and you'd like to hear more from. Alison McGovern. Labour for Wirral. Yes. Peter Kyle. Labour, Brighton, yeah, and yeah. Hove, yeah. Um, who co-sponsored the Kyle Wilson Amendment, which is about giving a sec... Oh, I get so confused. They will agree mind. with the deal as long as it's ratified by a referendum. By a put to a vote, yeah, a confirmatory referendum, right, yeah. Um, Alison Thewlis, SNP, Glasgow... East, East. no? Uh, who knows, I don't know, yes. I'm, I'm not going to commit to that. She uh, did work on period poverty. She's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, even though I disagree with the SNP on independence, they've brought a lot of talent mm. to Parliament. Stuart MacDonald... Glasgow South. There's two Stuart McDonalds, which is just very confusing. But okay, so, oh, so but is, is the other Stuart McDonald's was that Peterborough who lost his seat? Oh no, I'm thinking of Stuart Jackson. No, that's, that's no. Stuart <laughs> McDonald. They are two very different politicians. Stuart McDonald. Well, we can be nice South. about both the Stuart McDonalds. Why not? Exactly. Right. Okay. But I'm thinking of the SNP Glasgow South. Yeah. I should pick a Tory, and that's hard because there's a lot of them. And it's going to be someone I completely disagree with, but Tim Lawton. Interesting. Former Children's Minister. Yes. I mean, I okay, go on, go on. Uh, Tim is, even though I completely disagree with him on Brexit and so many other things, exceptionally passionate about children and young people. And when he was minister, had cross-party respect for the work that he did. And as much as, a, as he is a Tory, and as much as he will you know, devise Tory solutions to problems, his passion 
and his personality is something that Parliament needs. And he's a great, he's, a, he's one of the great hecklers at Prime Minister's Question. So for a slightly different reason, just purely for his um, rebellious spirit. See, I think you've got, from Tories, I think, two working in prisons. I think Bob Neal, who chairs the Justice Select Committee, is very fair and actually very committed to a a very un-Tory thing. Actually, weirdly, David Gork at Justice keeps sneaking out quite liberal measures. And Rory Stewart, I think. Oh, Rory Stewart. Yeah, he's one of those politicians. He's sort of an inverse Jess Phillips, right, in the sense that he's unwisely honest and you kind of want to go... Jess Phillips. I didn't pick Jess Phillips. I mean, I tried not to pick people that I know really, really well because Anna Soubry, Sarah Wollaston... uh, and Heidi Allen, I think, are exceptional. Nick Bowles is someone I think is exceptional. Chucker. And what I would say is I think the last few years have been really good. If there's any positive that people who have similar politics to me can take from the last few years, is that it has forced an improvement in the quality of the kind of post-New Labour generation. So Yvette Cooper, Chucker Imuna, have trebled in their quality as politicians, are far better now in the Commons are far better now in the media than they were when they were apparently in the Ascendant. Right. I mean, Yvette Cooper's record of opposing Theresa May at the Home Office is not a glorious one, given that Theresa May at no point you know, ran into any kind of scandal that, that toppled her, right, and therefore was able to ascend to the Prime Ministership. But since then, the work that Yvette Cooper's done on Brexit and on refugees has been... I mean, yeah, I'm worried that you're going to turn into a bit of a centrist love in there. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I picked Tim Lawton. Yeah. Um, He's very much not a centrist. Very much not a centrist. You know, I really disagree with Stuart and Alison on Scottish independence, even though they are kind of around the Social Democrat centre on, on the on the survival of the UK as an entity. I, I, I completely disagree with them. So I'm trying to think of people... It's all right. It's not a real quiz. No, I know, but I take this thing so seriously. <laughs> I think I've, I think I've provided. That. I think it's a kind of an important thing. To, it's not a very kind of particularly fashionable thing to do to say because some people then go, "Oh, you might like Rory Stewart, but he voted for austerity or whatever it is," and yeah. you kind of go, "Well, he's a Tory." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sort of comes with the. Hmm. But that, what I find is it kind of comes back to your original point about the things about Corbyn that I wouldn't like. There's always going to be something about every politician that you don't like. It's yes. about how. What, at what point it becomes a bar to you know? I just think that that question of compromise is so tense and so many people would like it not to exist that they sort of just want to wish away the problems rather than dealing with a you know a, a good but flawed candidate, right? Yeah, I mean, you see, one of the things that you've really seen, I think, on social media is talk of people's voting records. And it's exactly the point you make, is, well, they're Tories, so of course they're going to, on the whole, out of a mixture of personal ambition and ideology, vote with the Tory government if they're on the Tory backbenchers. That has obviously slightly broken down in, in this administration. But that doesn't mean you can't find either work they do as individuals or or agree with them on some issues and not on others. And that's, you know, it doesn't have to be zero-sum. You don't have to entirely agree or entirely disagree. You can say on that particular issue they did a really good job. All right, Pollyanna, that's enough. <laughs> enough lack of, for another refreshing lack of cynicism. Matt Falls, Brexit through the gift shop is at the Bloomsbury Theatre on the 25th of May and Brexit pursued by a bear. I mean, there really aren't any other puns. Like, come on. What I mean, I was fire Brexit. Uh, Brexit oh. music for a film. Yes. Uh, your what? sad Radiohead theme show. Uh, the Brexit episode. I mean, the problem is you end up contorting the word Brexit at, you know. Far beyond this. You go it's... mad with it. I mean, I must have tried at least a thousand, and they are the best two I could come up with. <laughs> and that says a lot for me. Although I must, uh, you know, it does not reflect the standard of the show. The rest of the show is a lot better than the title. <laughs> Thank you, Matt Ford. Cheers. Now for a segment we like to call You Ask Us. 
Yeah. Um, really what we should be doing to practice for when you move to um, the New Yorker is... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like one of those, because you'll have to write in this American style, right? Where it'll start with, you know, like, instead of the section we like to call You Ask Us, it'll be like, you know, this farmer who grows podcast helmets. <laughs> and you're like, what, what's the relevance of this to You Ask Us? And then, like, 2,000 words later, it'll be like, and this helmet was eventually put on by someone doing a podcast to say, You Ask Us. Okay, I thought it would be more like, in Podcast Bunker, questions are asked. Yeah, isn't that more like an American newspaper? I feel like, you know, the Atlantic, they yeah. know how to write headlines. They don't do that kind of like, you know, a prepossessing sentence, comma, an assertion. Yeah, that kind I, of thing. I, yeah, I find those headlines hilarious. I did one for the... Actually, you know, I, I can't complain because I wrote a piece about the for the New York Times and they did actually put a headline on it that was that both made sense and was like not written as if Yoda was delivering it. And I was sort of genuinely thrilled that that was possible. But you're right. The Atlantic are good at headlines, as they're good at everything else. And I deeply respect all of their work and I would like them to continue to I would like them to not withdraw their job offer thank you please but anyway it's time for a section we like to call you ask us right so someone asked about what's going to happen with Brexit which I have to say is not a new question but it is a perpetually interesting question while we don't know what the f is going on with Brexit yeah and I think actually the answer seems to be changing or at least it feels the consensus among a lot of the protagonists is changing Obviously, this is not the view of either leadership because neither of the other le- ni- ni- neither party leadership can, by definition, is, al- is allowed to really give voice to the thing that lots of MPs are starting to say. But the thing an MPs kind of think is, and you hear this particularly among MPs who have made a choice one way or the other, right? So obviously, the choice ultimately is: do you vote to revoke? Do you vote for the deal? And actually, broadly, the problem is is that there are two hundred MPs who voted for the two hundred something MPs who voted for the deal, a hundred and so MPs who voted to revoke. And a slightly larger number who voted for a second referendum. But but neither has got a majority, and the path to a majority in this parliament for either deal is not clear. And of course, while Brexit is unresolved, while many people want to move on and will vote on kind of non-Brexit issues, it does look as if enough people are going to continue to vote on Brexit to make it quite hard to see how either side is going to get a majority. And the point that yeah, one Conservative made to me, they said, oh, what you should do is go back and check, you know, what the proportion of sort of uh, diehard Eurosceptics in every intake is. And when you, you look at it, it's quite hard to come up with a plausible size of the Conservative majority, right? So let's say they gain 50 seats. Mm. Well, probably 20 of the 50 are going to be people who wouldn't vote for this deal. Which means that you have this situation you where You need a proper Tony Blair 1997 but, style bastard. I think even if you get to a 1997 style, you've still got... Yeah, you basically... A third of them are yeah, you just, never going to Yeah, you just increase the percentage problem because, you know, from a political perspective, right, it is just, I think, essentially impossible to draw up a plausible scenario in which it is ever in Labour's political interests to vote for a deal. Right, so your problem applies equally well if there's a Conservative landslide, ho, 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 and a Labour landslide. No, if there's a Labour... So basically, this is kind of the, the Brexit question. I think that you know, Summer and Lewis are a very good tweet, and while there are individual bits with it, then, you know, I, I would probably put a different emphasis on I think, actually, it, it is an observation which has not been sufficiently understood, which is, an, I think, it's hard, very hard to see how, in the event of a change of party, right? Because at the moment, you essentially have a chunk of Conservatives who, who, who won't vote for Brexit, despite having supported it for long years. You have... A Labour Party which would like Brexit to happen but doesn't want to take any political damage for it. Mm -hmm. And you have a chunk of the Labour Party which wants Brexit not to happen. 
What unites the Labour Party, however, with essentially two exceptions, is a fear of no deal and a desire to prevent no deal. So if you have a Labour government, you have similarly, and you'll have a Conservative opposition where people, for opportunistic reasons, do not want to vote for the Brexit on offer. You have a situation in which some people, probably a diminishing minority because of the changes within the Conservative activist base, would like Brexit not to happen. But you also have a large chunk of people who think no deal is better than a bad deal. And so it becomes even more difficult to go... I think the difference is... is It becomes (coughs) even more difficult then to pass a deal... To pass a deal. ...which the Labour are going to be on one side of and no deal Brexiteers are going to be on the other side of. And actually just... There's no way that you can move that little mini window in a way that then gets you a deal through. Yeah, it's kind of like a Tower of Hanoi puzzle, but someone's taken away one of the... You know, one of those things where you need to put the weight... Did you never play a Bioware video game? Anyway, but like... Oh, yeah, I mean, I play a lot, yeah. Yeah, um, but... um, Boy, have I done my time in the Bioware mines. But yeah, um, I I see what you mean. But the question on that is, the the logical conclusion of that is, Brexit is waiting for Godot, right? It never... It's always just... It's always being discussed, but it never actually happens. Yeah, this is the thing lots of MPs kind of think, because... Please tell me that's not true. I can't bear it. I mean, it, it it is difficult to see, right? Because... It's hard to see how on the Conservative side they can achieve a majority big enough mm. to kind of overcome their sort of problem with passing a deal. On the Labour side, it's quite hard to see how they can win big enough majority with Brexit still unresolved, unresolved mm. because of that chunk of voters on both sides of the Brexit divide who you can plausibly see on other issues why they why they would be voting for for the Labour Party, but they're not going to while while they want Brexit to be stopped or to be honoured in a harder... Yeah, you because know, obviously mostly voters believe Bre- Labour is an anti-Brexit party. So it's Which is ha- kind of fascinating, right? That was in a piece of polling that came out this week when they asked voters, yeah. they think... And then there was this alarming number of people, I thought, thought the Conservatives were an anti-Brexit party. Well, I think that is the the really fascinating thing about that set of polling. I mean, I guess maybe is, yeah. stealthily they kind of are in that they I keep mean, stopping it from happening by voting against it. But I think, it, to me at least, I, I think there are lots of good arguments against the second referendum. But I think the argument that people will take it as a betrayal, when we've got to a point where there is a Brexit deal which takes us out of the common fisheries po- uh, policy, out of the common agricultural policy, out of the single market, doesn't really take us out of the customs union. And actually, if what you want is to strike your own trade deals, you're probably right to be a bit meh about, about the withdrawal agreement. But it's Brexit, right? It is, a, it is, it is definitely Brexit, right? You, you just cannot, with a straight face, mm. if the word Brexit has a tangible, deliverable, achievable meaning... It's Brexit. If if the price of people not saying they've been betrayed is various bad faith actors and to the Conservatives' right flank saying this ain't the real thing, that Brexit does not exist because it's never in the political interests of people not to say this ain't the real Well, this was your point, thing. wasn't it? Is that, that Nigel Farage is, has many motivations for being in politics, but one of the highest, I would say, is people listening to Nigel Farage and yeah. therefore him going, I'm so glad that I've got everything that I wanted. I'm off to my... I'm I'm trying to work out what he even does. I'm off to the little... Off to give speeches to, like, conservative think tanks about how, you know, the East End is like, you know, little Tehran now. Um, (laughs) It's like West Side Story. Yeah, so I think... Yes, I think which has been John Elledge's argument for some time, right, is that those people have a lively political and, in some cases, financial and attention-based interest in whatever happens being a betrayal. So you've just got to factor that in that anything is going to be uh, a betrayal. I think that's probably answered that person's question. They're probably now off to have a you know, cyanide and a pearl-handled revolver. Because as you put in your column this week, you know, Labour is doing some other policy thinking. It, it, it got into a kind of rare, grumpy row with the BBC right, about the bus policy not getting any time on the Today programme. But Labour is 
trying to push ahead with the policy agenda and just finding... Well, I think the weird thing is... It's is not getting any airtime. One of their advantages in a general election is they and the voters have something in common, which is that they would like Brexit to go away as an issue. Unfortunately for both of them is that... I mean, this is... Yeah, the tragedy is, right, people keep saying, oh, I just want it to go away, which actually, even with a Remain vote, at least means that Whitehall doesn't have to deal with it anymore. But the only way to make Brexit go away is to invent a time machine and stuff a whole bunch of ballots for Ed Miliband in 2015. Not that I'm advocating breaking the laws of time or electoral fraud. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Stephen will be back, probably slightly tired, hopefully not seeing any of Les Mis, but, you know, maybe tweet him about that if you want him to, with a special post-local elections broadcast later in the week. (laughs) 